1: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of New Books in Anthropology. My name is Dana Dennis and I'm one of the co-hosts of the channel. Today I'm very pleased to bring you an interview with Dr. Jessica Falcone about her great new book, Battling the Buddha of Love, a cultural biography of the greatest statue never built from Cornell University Press. Dr. Falcone and I had the opportunity to catch up at the AAAs, the American Anthropological Association, annual meetings in San Jose, California, just a couple of weeks ago. And so we got to have this conversation in person, which was really fun. Um, I hope you enjoyed the interview, and I hope you get your hands on a copy of this wonderful book. This is Dana Dennis with the New Books Network, and we're coming to you sort of live from the um, AAA meetings here in San Jose, California. I'm here with Dr. Jess Falcone, um, and we're going to talk about her wonderful new book that came out from Cornell University Press this year, Battling the Buddha of Love, a cultural biography of the greatest statue never built. It's a wonderful story, and I'm really excited to talk with her. So welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited
1: about this opportunity. Me too. Glad we could make this happen. Um, so first, can you just tell me the story? Like, how did you come to write this book?
0: Yes. Um, I heard about this potentially giant statue project. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. kind of how it was posed um, when I was uh, living in Florida, mm-hmm. when I was an undergrad at, at New College of Florida. And I remember being really interested mm-hmm. So my first thought was one of fascination, mm-hmm. like like a the biggest statue in the world. They're mm-hmm. going to build a giant Buddha statue in India, and it's going to be the biggest in the world. And I, I was really, um, at that time, just intrigued. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't um, excited or critical. I was just really interested. And, uh, you know, my... My anthropological, spidey senses started tingling, and I was like, why? Why do they want to build this project? And uh, where? And what kind, you know, which Buddha, right? Is a Shakyamuni Buddha, uh, what kind of Buddha will they build? Uh, why so big? Uh, where are they, um, you know, where are they thinking that they're going to put this? And uh, so the questions just uh, took on a life of their own, and I ended up. Um, also being intrigued by the fact that they uh, and by they I mean F- FPMT the foundation for the preservation of the Mahayana tradition and that is the organization that wanted to build this giant statue in India uh, they started talking about it as an engaged Buddhist project so that was really interesting to me they wanted to you know pitch it as something that would be helpful to the people in the locality mm-hmm. And uh, so, I was interested in kind of well, what does that mean to do this kind of development work, and also be a religious organization. Uh, FPMT happens to be a transnational Buddhist organization, so it's mostly non-heritage white converts that are that are uh, building this, this statue. So, how does that um, you know how does how does globalization figure into this gargantuan? statue project that's going to be built in India. And so I really was interested in studying the the pre-life of this giant statue. And um, as you can tell from the title of my book, the the statue was never built. So I ended up studying the non-event of this giant statue. Um, But I think it's really important to kind of be attuned to pre-events and plans and drafts and the way that uh, people's, um, hopes and anxieties are present, uh, in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Korean American artist, uh, who coined that phrase that, that is popular, kind of, the future is now. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, a project like this, an anthropological project, uh, that is looking at a, a pre-event or a non-event, uh, really does, um,
1: give life to that phrase. So so that's how I came to the project. Yeah, I agree. We can definitely learn a lot from projects that fail or plans that never come to pass. And I think your book is like an amazing example of that. Um, so maybe we could just talk a little bit more about why? Well, you know, maybe you could just start answering some of those great questions you pose <laughs> mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of your research. You're you're wondering why? What does this engaged Buddhism mean? Um, what does it mean in terms of globalization when we have an organization primarily composed, as you said, of non-heritage Buddhists um, working to raise funds all over the world to build this statue in a very specific location in India in Kushinagar? So. Um, yeah, take yeah, us, take sure, us into it. Sure. Maybe um, one thing that I found really useful about the mm-hmm. book was um, your explanation of heritage and non-heritage Buddhists sure. as the terms that you were mm-hmm. using. So um, maybe you could explain that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. I, I could start there. Um,
0: and I, I do in the, the book as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and, and maybe even to back up one step further, the book is really divided into two sections and the first section is kind of interrogating FPMT and the and it's Maitreya project, right? It's heart project to build this giant statue, uh, and looking at kind of the the desires and the hopes and anxieties of the statue makers, the um, the would-be statue makers, uh, and the the second half of the book focuses more on. the the locality where they wanted to build this this particular iteration of the statue, uh, which is Kushinagar, which is where the historical Buddha passed away. And um, I look at the the farmers' grassroots resistance movement that sprung up in opposition to the project, um, mostly due to a massive land acquisition that was essentially, uh, through the process of eminent domain, going to take uh, their farmland or their homes, sometimes both. Uh, so, you know, 2,000-plus farming families would have been uh, ne- very negatively socioeconomically impacted. So, you know, so uh, that is the, the, the general framing of this of this book, looking at these two uh, groups that, that were in opposition to each other and really never really never met. Like, they, they really they really um, were very separated. Uh, you know, FPMT did not have any presence in Kushinagar. The Kushinagari grassroots movement really didn't understand at first even what FPMT was and who they were and why were they trying to ruin their lives. <laughs> and so, so I, you know, that's the, the general structure. And then going back to your... your Excellent question. Um, you know, what do I mean when I say non-heritage? Um, I, I essentially am, was grappling with the literature that talks about, you know, um, so-called Western Buddhism or global Buddhism, and I found some of the terminology to be a little un, unsatisfying. Um, so there was, you know, some terminology that really relied heavily, kind of on. On race or sometimes class as the only determined de- determiners and factors uh, and I found that uh, just mm-hmm. um, it was unworkable for me uh, because some of these groups are so diverse mm-hmm. I mean there are FPM tiers of every race and every class
1: <laughs> so mm-hmm. so yeah, just, so we're not just talking about rich white American Buddhists
0: there are some rich white American Buddhists in this organization, but there are also uh, working class um, uh, folks in this organization. Um, I've met uh, people of color mm-hmm. um, in FPMT, mm-hmm. so so to you know to use kind of the the fashionable terminology, which would say, well, we've got ethnic Buddhism on the one hand and elite Buddhism on the other. Uh, that um, was just. Uh, Uh, not ideal. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that enculturation was really the the most important thing. And so I use this, I talk about this uh, heritage spectrum for practitioners and you have uh, heritage practitioners that grew up in a particular tradition. And then you have non-heritage practitioners that chose the the particular tradition and chose to, to engage with it and learn about it. Um, and there's even some semi heritage folks in the middle who have really have very complicated, interesting stories. Uh, but for me, uh, I do think that you know putting putting enculturation front and center. Um, I think um, it was useful in terms of finding a, a set of terminologies that worked better for me and for the complexity of what I was seeing in this transnational organization, right? Because if you just say well, it's a it's a Tibetan Buddhist group. Um, that doesn't that's not very much information. If you say transnational, that's a little bit better, but that doesn't really tell you that much. Um, I think having um, a practitioner spectrum, um, and then I also go on to try to define a heritage spectrum for institutions. Um, I think that for me helped. Uh, and as a framing that would show the complexity of this organization in its global Buddhist context. So, I identify FPMT as a relatively non heritage institution because it's diverged so much from its antecedent Tibetan Buddhisms. Um, that doesn't make it any less uh, authentic, it doesn't make it any less Buddhist, it just uh, you know, serves to highlight some of the changes and innovations that they've made. You know, this group that was, um, you know, officially founded in the 70s, and, you know, you had uh, heritage Tibetan lamas that were teaching, you know, folks from all over the world, from Switzerland and France and the United States and uh, Singapore and Mexico. Uh, they were, you know, teaching meditation practices in English. They were teaching, um, you know, they, they developed a new pedagogy they they develop new practices, they, they have, uh, it's a different world. So if you were to go to Sarah J. Monastery, uh, which is a you know, more her- relatively heritage institution, the practices there are different, right? And that's, you know, so without any judgment, I just think it's important to kind of acknowledge that in this, in this world of global Buddhism, we have to do a better job of re- respecting the complexity both with it, these newer institutions, and also with the um, the practitioners that um, that are uh, reinventing and innovating and practicing in these relatively uh, relatively newer institutions. So, so thank yeah, you for that nice. question because I do think it 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 helps to explain uh, what FPMT is, mm-hmm. right and as an organization and kind of who FPM theaters are. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Um, so with that background, which is really helpful, can you tell us how this Maitreya, or sorry, am I saying it right? Maitreya? Maitreya, um, project, yeah. Maitreya project was, um, was it, con- how was it conceived and how did it come to be such an important focus for the organization? Um, particularly during the field work period for you, which was mm-hmm. in the, um, first decade of this millennium mm-hmm. um but yeah it had its roots before that and it's mm-hmm. still ongoing in some form so yeah, yeah yeah how did this project come to be such an important um, focus for fpmt yeah so
0: lama yeshe
1: uh, is
0: the kind of a uh, main founder if you will um lama zopa Rinpoche was his disciple and uh is currently the, the, the kind of religious head of the organization. Um, Lama Geshe uh, had an idea that it would be really nice to build a Maitreya statue. Um, and Maitreya, of course, is the, fut- the future Buddha, so the Buddha to come. Um, and he wanted to build this in India. Lama Yeshe was himself a Tibetan refugee, so he um, couched it as a, a return gift to India, as a way of saying thank you for their hosting uh, and kind of providing a space of refuge for so many um, exiles uh, from Tibet. So the early versions of the story that I that I read about and that I heard about, um, he didn't actually say how big he wanted it to be, or even um, you know what you know form it would take exactly. Just you know a, a Maitreya for world peace uh, somewhere, um, probably Bodh Gaya. And, you know, after he died in the early 80s, his um, his main disciple, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, took up this idea and kind of moved it forward within the organization and um, started talking about it. Again, I've never done an interview with Lama Zopa Rinpoche, so I should note, note that this is all based on, uh, you know, my representation of the lamas is based on uh, public record. So what what's been... Said in uh, in the media, so um, moving this project forward as his heart project, um, something that is a way of honoring his his guru, and uh, so, but the project also, you know, went through many hands, and so there was uh, kind of experts, and there were um, you know there were uh, engineers, and there were art, there were artists, and there were um, uh, you know. Uh, even um, folks that were, you know, folks that were worried about the, the donations and the financing. So th- there's, there's a lot of people, I think that were involved in making the project as big as it ended up being. So I think, um, you know, many hands ended, ended up kind of creating a dream of a 500 foot statue and 500 uh, foot 500- a 500 foot statue at that point it would have been the biggest statue in the world and so um, you know really kind of supersized dream for a global Buddhist age mm-hmm. um, and of course big statues are are not uncommon you know so you can go to Tibet uh, and and I did mm-hmm. so I, I, did, I visited uh, many Maitreya statues there but this is um, you know this uh, Maitreya project was you know far bigger in scope and size than anything that had been done in Tibet before and it would have been the first statue um, you know within the Tibetan Buddhist milieu that, allowed devotees to walk inside of it, right? That there would be chapels inside, that there would be teaching spaces inside, where right? there would be bathrooms inside, which some of the devotees were really upset upset about when they thought oh, about man. that, right? I didn't even think about yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that there would, you know, that, 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 that the structure itself was something that people would be living or, you know, uh, yeah, moving through and, and, you know, being living beings inside of, which I think is, you know, sp- which would have been quite a divergence from anything that had come before. So, uh, so that's a little bit of background about how it kind of became such an important project. And you know, uh, all of the years that I spent in FPMT, uh, and you know, I should say this for the for the record, it's in the book. But you know, I embraced FPMT. Personally, as someone who was interested in Buddhism, so I I became a Buddhist student in the in the nineties. I took refuge in the FPMT organization with Lama Zopa Rinpoche. That's the one time we've ever come face to face. Was when I took refuge uh, in Florida in the nineties, and you know, so you know, in my years as as a student, as a volunteer. Uh, as somebody who um, saw myself as part of the Sangha, uh, I heard a lot about this project and it was, it was very enthusiastic. it was a very central part of FPMT's um, desire for growth. It was a, a really a shared dream. Um, and so uh, at, you know, during my research period when I was going to different FPMT centers, both uh, in India, and also the United States, um, every place had some sort of altar or some set of signs or some posters or places where you can make a donation to the Maitreya project. It became a very central part of FPMT's shared vision of its future. Um, uh, Someone articulated it as kind of like the crown jewel, the potential crown jewel in in the crown of FPMT. Uh, And think um you know it'll be interesting to see you know in the future you know uh because, because there is still an iteration of this that is in pro- in process um, it, it'll be interesting to see whether people feel fulfilled you know that that if the if this statue is someday uh, built whether people will feel that that dream has been fulfilled uh, so so that um yeah that gives you a little sense of kind of how this became such a central wish within the organization.
1: Yeah, thank you. So can you tell me a little bit more about, um, I'm thinking about the chapter that talks about Relics Tours as Mm -hmm. one of the ways in which um, this vision was kind of being built throughout the global Mm -hmm. FPMT organization and sort of raising funds and also kind of uniting that vision for the Maitreya
0: project. Yeah, that ended up being a really central uh, engagement for me. Um, so, you know, I, in the introduction of this book, I talk about the fact that you know I'm essentially circumambulating a statue that doesn't exist yet. And so, one of one of the the places that I found myself uh, you know going on this journey in circles uh, was um, you know to follow the relic tour to many of its of its stops, uh, and the the relic tour was um, a set of uh, Buddhist relics that was that was collected by Lama Zopa Rinpoche uh, and set in motion kind of as a traveling exhibit and it it made stops all over the world at, at some points uh, there were multiple versions of it out there there was like a Europe leg, and there was an uh, America's leg and you know it it um it really did tr- travel all over the world. Uh, so some of these pieces um, were said to have been from uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, uh, even Kashapa Buddha, the previous Buddha. Uh, there was um, you know, many pieces from kind of important teachers. Uh, so they were uh, kept in these uh, little uh, glass uh, urns and kind of packed in these like you know, heavy-duty security suitcases mm-hmm. and they would travel um, with a kind of relic tour um, a relic tour organizers that were part of the organization that set things up that had, um, you know, uh, that, you know, did uh, these really interesting um, talks about both the relics but also the Maitreya project. Mm-hmm. Um, this this relic tour was, a, it was a part of the Maitreya project, right? So it, it really was, um, you know, the, the very center of the relic tour t- you know, altar was a big statue of this particular Maitreya Buddha that was that w- had been designed um, to, to be this 500-foot statue. So it was kind of this kind of traveling ambassador, or the Maitreya project. Uh, They always had a video going, kind of talking about what the the project would become, why it was important to support it, all of the the karmic benefits that would accrue to people who made donations. Uh, So, you know, it really um, served as an emissary, uh, both, you know, kind of spreading the good word of this exciting, you know, statue project, but also collecting donations for it. And in some ways, it was one of the most kind of uh, tangible aspects of this, you know, this pre-event that I was trying to study, right? Because this the, the relictor was out there in the world doing this work, and so I could, um, you know, talk to organizers. I could talk to people who were visitors. I could talk to uh, volunteers, and you know, go and see if this this piece of the statue project pre-life that was very definitely um, in motion.
1: Yeah. I really like Mm the sort of um, imagery, I guess, of linking the past Buddhas with the Maitreya, the future Buddha, Mm -hmm. right? And the sort of um, planned project, right? So a sort of immediately imagined future of the Maitreya Buddha's representation in anticipation of the Maitreya Buddha's future emergence, um, yeah it's a really interesting kind of symmetry and I was wondering if um, are these relic tours like unique to FPMT uh, so I, there have so there are relics that are on display mm-hmm. in other
0: places sure um, sure so I've but I've not um, I, and I and I say this with some trepidation because yeah. I'm actually not sure yeah um, if if it's the case that it's the only tour out there, mm-hmm. but certainly it was a very, a very public, um, it was a very public ritual display. And I don't know of any other, I don't know of any other kind of organized relic tour out there. Um, I, I, I saw relics on parade mm-hmm. when they were being installed in temples. So I saw some different versions of a relic, um, relic ceremonies Mm -hmm. but I've never seen anything like this before yeah so with 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 a cautionary note that I'm not sure
1: sure I would say it's it's fairly unique (laughs) sure sure I mean it reminded me of like relic tours organized not necessarily relic tours but um sort of the catholic church's practice Mm of um circulating important relics like during the middle ages, but I'm not a specialist on that era of history. So I was just like, maybe I'm just like making things up in my mind, but yeah, no, it was just interesting to me mm-hmm. as I was like, Oh, maybe this is one of the sort of new forms or practices mm-hmm. of the global Buddhism mm-hmm. of the kind that FPMT is um, like one of the sort of leading exemplars.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would definitely say that, um, you know, on that list of things that kind of makes FPMT different than its antecedent institutions, I would definitely say that the Relic Tours is on that list, you know, something where uh, they they took something that was a part of the tradition and they they, they um, uh, turned it into something a little new, right? Mm-hmm. They, they put it on world tour, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Yeah. Um, and developed you know, a, a set of rituals and kind of a set of practices that would work, you know, just for like one weekend uh, in any context. So one of the things that I found fascinating about it was, you know, it, it showed up at yoga studios, it showed up at Chinese temples, it showed up at uh, a Vietnamese uh, community center, it showed up, um, you know, in in different um, in different places where it had been invited, like whether it was a, a, a Buddhist space or not. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I do think that there was something, um, you know, it, it wasn't, um, you know, a, a missionizing mm-hmm. practice, but it was a, it was an ambassador, mm-hmm. you know, kind mm-hmm. of sending out something of that, ben- the, the, you know, they would argue has karmic benefit for anyone who, sees it and um, and also has a benefit for the Maitreya project since it it was doing so much fundraising and um, public relations work for this giant statue project so um, yeah it, it it was really unique and, and it, it, it's no longer ha- it's no longer moving so okay the, the relic tour is not out there anymore okay um, they stopped that a, a handful of years ago mm-hmm. but it was moving for a long time I, I I don't know exactly how many years, but I'm going to guess I'm at least at least ten years. So that, that's wow. that's um, I think that that's fair. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It was in motion for a long time. <laughs> that's cool.
1: So I want to ask about um, the sort of other components of the Maitreya project as it was envisioned in Kushinagar. So um, we've talked a little bit about the idea of like engaged Buddhism. Mm -hmm. and that was an important part or a component of the project right was this belief that like it's going to do good things for the local community um in a sort of karmic sense but also in a a more immediate and material kind of sense so can you tell me a little bit about those aspects of the project as they were envisioned yeah the plan
0: was um they were going to build a kind of a hospital and they were also going to build a school mm-hmm. and so they had the, you know these kind of corollary, corollary projects that were um, envisioned as being gi- directly helpful in terms of poverty alleviation work uh, so and they did couch it as engaged buddhism so mm-hmm. a lot of the people that i talked to said that it was important to them That so a lot of the people within fpmt and i should uh, note, you know, said, you know, it's not just going to be a, a grand statue, right? It's also going to directly you know, help the people in that area by providing opportunities for medical care and education that they might not have had otherwise. And I can, and I do, so I do see those as kind of being linked, at least in the vision of what mm-hmm. this project would become. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think that my I was very surprised then that there seemed to be so little care about the, the potential beneficiaries of this project mm-hmm. in the in the process of trying to acquire land mm-hmm. for the, the statue park. Yeah. So you know, on the one hand, you know, there there is a lot of um, appropriate um, discussion of kind of like how can we benefit the people. In the locality. And then, on the other hand, in practice, uh, there was um, a lack of attention and Mm -hmm. care to the ways that the plans were affecting the people on the ground. Mm -hmm. And it it was um, shocking to me Mm -hmm. as a researcher that FPMT had no presence in Kushinagar at the time. Not a single person from the organization had a, a a place in Kushinagar, you know, um, not even, you know, like flying in a few times a year to kind of do, uh, you know, group meetings or uh, to try to find ways that um, the local community could be um, incorporated into some of the planning efforts. Uh, There was just a complete lack of interest Mm -hmm. in what was happening in Kushinagar itself. Mm -hmm. And um, so that um, you know, really, I, I mean, I, I think that that was a, a a major stumbling block for for the the pro- the project mm-hmm. from the beginning.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, your book, I believe, opens with this really tense scene on a bridge that you're describing, where you're sort of surrounded by angry farmers who are protesting the Maitreya project. Um, and so right from the beginning of the book, there's this sense of like, oh, this doesn't go well, right? This is <laughs> yes. this is not a case of like, you know, very happy community relations with this international organization. Um, so maybe you could just take us into the details of that a little bit more. So why was there so much resistance to the Maitreya project in the local community and how did that kind of ultimately contribute to the to the downfall of at least this version of the project.
0: Yeah. Um, so now we're getting into kind of the second half of the book, yeah. and uh, I really, um, I really didn't expect. I should say at the right, right at the outset, mm-hmm. uh, I was ac- incredibly naive when I picked this project. Like I really thought that the engaged Buddhist angle would mean that you know that there was kind of, kind of social capital it was wrapped up in loving kindness, mm-hmm. right? As, uh, you know, as Maitri, this was a supposed to be a, a statue of loving kindness, right? Maitri my, my, my and Maitre as a representative of loving kindness. So I thought, you know, well, you know, development projects can go awry, but a Buddhist development project, I mean, they have a deep ethical responsibility that's not an external responsibility. It's, mm-hmm. it's an internal one. You know that there should be, uh, you know, that that is deeply ingrained in their own beliefs and values, mm-hmm. and so I mm-hmm. really um, expected uh, a lot of attentive care to the, the local community, um, and so it was a little, um, it was very disconcerting <laughs> when yeah. I when I arrived in Kushinagar and started doing interviews and 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 you know realized uh, you know really very early on that this was an incredibly controversial project Mm -hmm. in Kushinagar itself. Uh, So there, um, you know, and and there were differing opinions. I I don't want to make it seem like everyone in Kushinagar uh, was against the statue, but, you know, 750 acres of land was, was the kind of original, uh, um, you know, that was the original ask um, that eventually was reduced to 661 acres But that's still an enormous amount of land, given how small these farms are, right? These are, um, a lot of these are subsistence farmers. Many of them are, uh, you know, they're farming kind of fractions of an acre to support their families, and, you know, this, the the, um, state government of Uttar Pradesh had basically, you know, worked out with the Maitreya project that they were going to use the Land Acquisition Act. There was this kind of colonial era relic and they were going to use it to uh, take the land from farmers who were relying on it Mm -hmm. um, and that they would give them compensation, but but the compensation packages were, you know, widely panned as being... um, insufficient is is, is, too, is is not the best word um, yeah, as being criminal. Yeah. Criminally insufficient. Com- yeah, yeah, completely
1: <laughs> just paltry yes. amounts of money. yeah And also, I mean, money in and of itself doesn't fully account for the fact that, like, um, you know, for many of these people, there's a sort of deep attachment to the land where they've been living for generations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A deep attachment and
0: knowledge of the lands mm-hmm. um, and... And a deep attachment to their communities, you know, so you can't, I mean, part of the problem is you can't just give a family, you know, 10% of their land value and then say, we'll go off and start over somewhere else without watching, you know, a whole community fall apart. And so not only was the, the, not only were the rates of compensation very controversial and very unsatisfying to the local community, and uh, you know the prospect of losing their social networks and their and their social safety nets. Mm-hmm. You know their um, the relationships that have been developed in these villages over many generations. Uh, you know that was extremely extremely anxiety provoking. Mm-hmm. People and the people who stood to lose land or their homes. Or their community were outraged and and scared. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it, on the other hand, there were some business people kind of in the, you know, the, the Kushinagar proper, in, in the town, you know, where all the pilgrims come to, um, you know, to go to the Mahaparinirvana temple to pay their respects. The business owners were. Know, acknowledged that the land compensation rates were too low, and they said that they felt terribly sorry for the farmers, but they still hoped that the statue would come because it would be uh, a really um, beneficial kind of economic boon for them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I definitely don't want to paint Kushinagar with an uncomplicated brush. There was a lot of different people that stood to to lose and, and stood to gain, but. Everyone said that the farmers were getting a raw deal, mm-hmm. and that was really um, kind of not a fact that's in dispute. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, you know the farmers themselves then kind of uh, started this organization, uh, the BBSs, the um, uh, the Bumi Bichau Sankarsh Samiti, this kind of uh, save the land movement, and they began um, protesting so they, they started, uh, um, uh, you know, protests in the, in the kind of public square. They, st- they started, um, organizing, uh, fasting strikes. Some of them were rotating fasts so that there would always be, you know, someone sitting there kind of not not taking water, not mm-hmm. taking anything but water. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would, they had, um, strikes where they would block the national highway. Uh, they had, um, Actions that they took in front of the district magistrate's office. So they had, you know, a series of um, kind of direct action strategies that I do think were fairly effective. I mean, the 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 kind of the local politics of this is really interesting, and um, I don't spend a lot of time on it, but Mm -hmm. I spend a little bit of time looking at kind of the ways that the farmer. The farmers' movement engages with some of the different political parties in Uttar Pradesh, and the and their um, cynicism about the things that these different politicians are saying. Um, especially since it, you know, their their read on it was that every time uh, a politician was out of power, they were very supportive of the farmers' movement, mm-hmm. and then once they were in power, they kind of just kind of allowed the the um, the wheels of this, this large development project, uh, to move forward. So, um, you know, I, I really, um, you know, I, I felt that it was really important to, to tell the the story of this, this grassroots resistance movement. And, you know, there, there were times that, um, you know, that there were times in the fields where, the the anger and the fear and the resentment and the bitterness of um, you know the, the, the farmers um, or even of uh, FPM tears who felt like their their you know their good intentions were being thwarted um, you know the the anger of some of my informants um, was hard for me as a researcher mm-hmm. um, and there are times that I considered walking away from this project. Um, but but I do feel that you know I had a responsibility mm-hmm. you know to tell the story of this uh, grassroots resistance movement. Um, they entrusted me with their stories, and I, I felt that um, as hard as this book was to write, it was important to um, to fulfill that responsibility.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you didn't walk away from the project, (laughs) although I can certainly understand why you would want to if you were, um, on the one hand, sort of um, getting on the bad side of FPMT Mm -hmm. as an organization and many people within the organization feeling like your actions were perhaps even sort of directly contributing to, like, thwarting this project. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, on the other side... um, for you as like a, a visibly white Western woman doing this research in Kushinagar, um, you write about, you know, sort of encountering some very probably justified suspicion mm-hmm. about your motives and whether mm-hmm. you were in fact, you know, working for the FPMT project. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you're not having really an easy time <laughs> on either side in terms of your working relationships with your informants. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, yeah. I'm glad you persevered <laughs> through that <laughs> to bring us this this book, which I think does tell a really interesting story. And um, one of the things that I appreciated about it was that it um, in some ways does kind of come off as a story of um, a victory of direct action, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. And it's nice to – it's actually nice to see a protest movement succeed mm-hmm. sometimes, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, even though I realized that meant disappointment for lots of other people. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I and I, I –
0: I should I should note
1: to be completely fair there was
0: there were numerous factors mm-hmm. that played into the cancellation of, of this iteration of the project and I I um, you know so I, I wouldn't want to say that it was it was just this like mighty mm-hmm. um, you know ground you know gra- mm-hmm. from from the ground a grassroots movement that um you know that you know where they they uh, Organized, and they were able to kind of defeat this like massive global mm-hmm. um, religious, you know, corporation. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that was, that did happen, but it, it was also the case that FPMT was really wrestling with the funding for mm-hmm, the project, and mm-hmm. um, it's also the case that there were kind of um, it, there, there was some political. Uh, there was some politics, local politics, that also played into some of this, and um, so I, it, was a, it, was a, it was a number of factors. <laughs> so I tried
1: Yeah, I tried as it to, always is. I you know, we're anthropologists. We're yeah, always yeah. saying it's more complicated. Yeah, it's yes, more complicated. Yes,
0: yes, yes, I just i um, I do think that the the farmers, you know, were a massive factor amongst you know a set of a set of of factors that came together to make it impossible for that particular version of the statute to, to happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, in that way it, it is, um, you know, it is a, a, a story of, of, um, you know, the way that a, a, a global project is, is adversely affecting a mm-hmm. locality mm-hmm. and the way that a locality can kind of turn the tables and push back against, yeah. against some of these, um, uh, globalized projects, mm-hmm. you know that that's that seem kind of painful. At one point, uh, one of my informants called it like the the Buddhist Coca Cola. Yeah, know? and so they were like, oh, if it's this, if it's this giant corporation out there in in the trans, you know, in this transnational ether, like how do we mm-hmm. fight against them?" Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so um, I think that they 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 were just incredibly persistent and and uh, they were. They were powerful activists, and, mm-hmm. and they, um, I, I think, really fought to make sure that this version of the future, uh, where they were displaced or you know, lost their farmland or um, you know uh, their community was torn apart, that that version of the future didn't come to pass. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I do think that, that that's a, a story worth telling.
1: Yeah. One of the moments that I liked was when one of your informants in Kushinagar said, to you something like well what if we just took like 500 acres of land in the united yeah. states to build a giant <laughs> statue of hanuman like how about that yeah. and i was just like yeah that's a completely mm-hmm. valid point mm-hmm. right yeah. you know uh yeah. turning it around mm-hmm. um i think it's a yeah yeah it's a useful rhetorical strategy
0: yeah i mean and and in
1: fact um
0: you know the, the one the place that that fails that analogy fails a little is you know so i i teach in kansas and mm-hmm. so i have students that you know some of my students are are from farming families and a lot of kansas farms are actually quite big yeah <laughs>
1: so, right, so right yeah it's a totally different <laughs> kind of farming it's a little bit, farming. it's a
0: little bit different when i tell this story in kansas you know there aren't <laughs> a, there aren't as many you know people in a in a farming Village that are like relying Mm -hmm. so heavily on kind of fractions of an acre Mm -hmm. to survive. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So, 500. So, sometimes my Kansas students are like, yeah, 500 acres. Like, let them have it. Let (laughs) Let them just like sell it. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. That's, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it's a very different context. It's a very, very different context. Yeah. 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 Yeah, But even, (laughs) I mean, even if 500 acres isn't that much in Kansas, I can imagine that Mm -hmm. if it was just like, Oh, well, we're just going to take it, and there's no—you're not going to be compensated. Right, and there's right, nothing right, you can right. do. Oh, sure, no, no, that no, would no. still yes. irritate people. But yeah, definitely the impact yeah. in Kuchinagar <laughs> yes. was, like disproportionate. Absolutely, yes.
0: And these are these these are poor families. Yeah, like this is a this is a poor region of a of a poor state. You mm-hmm. know, even even by Indian standards, mm-hmm. right? Which is mm-hmm. you know um, a developing nation, right? So I think. Um, it, it definitely you know deserves to be stated for the record that yeah. um, this would have you know very directly and negatively impacted families that can't that could not afford this this sort of you know have, having their mm-hmm. worlds turned upside down through displacement mm-hmm. you know especially under the conditions in which they were receiving an adequate compensation mm-hmm. so yeah, it's very it's very true. Um, five hundred acres in in agrarian India is not the same as five hundred acres in
1: rural Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> so so, uh, so this version of the project came to an end, but as you write about toward the end of the book, there's a new version of the project in the works mm-hmm. that involves components at two sites, right? Mm-hmm. One component in Bodgaya and one at Kushinagar. Mm -hmm. So, can you tell us, like, what is the current sort of FPMT vision for the Maitreya project? Yeah, I can. Well, I can.
0: um, So, this is my my epilogue Mm -hmm. because I I have I've been out of the field for years now. Um, So, but based on everything that again is kind of in the public domain and in in, you know published in in the media, uh, the the. The 500-foot the statue that I was researching, what I call Maitreya Project 2.0, um, because the 1.0 was mm-hmm. supposed to be built in, in Bodh Gaya. Um, so I, I, this book is about Maitreya Project 2.0. Um, the epilogue mentions that that version of the statue was canceled in 2012. It was just canceled. Uh, there was a discussion about reorganization. Um, the kind of the public... Message was well, you know, the funding didn't go as planned, Um, and a year later, or a little bit over a year later, um, you know, I I read that uh, they, uh, you know, that that their vision of of maybe having like a smaller statue in Bodgaya was going to be accompanied by also having another smaller statue in Kushinagar. So,
1: so if you can't you know, make one big statue, maybe two small <laughs> maybe, ones?
0: Maybe, maybe. Or I mean, small yeah. in
1: relative terms. Relatively
0: smaller. Um, and they're, they're still being a little bit um, ambiguous about the, the size of these of these future iterations. Uh, it does look like, you know, it might be a kind of a third of the height of what they had anticipated for Maitreya mm-hmm. Project 2.0. Uh, but you know, that's all still very, um, you know, much in the air. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful, uh, I'm trying to be cautiously hopeful that there's, have been lessons learned here on both sides and that FPMT will Mm -hmm. move forward with these more modest projects with, um, more attentiveness to the needs of the local community um so i I hope that i'm not still being naive (laughs) i mean i i i i I desperately want there to be a win-win at the Mm -hmm. end of this Mm -hmm. um but uh i i would um you know i I'm certainly that's certainly not a project that I'm going to undertake, so I would invite any other anthropologist out there to yeah. to look at you know what happens next, right? Or to kind of follow follow um, follow my trailer project 3.0 mm-hmm. uh, and to kind of see what happens next. But um, you know, I, I think it's important. I, I I also hope that the book plays a role in that. Mm-hmm. I hope that you know, a little bit of accountability mm-hmm. will be, be a motivating factor mm-hmm. for, a, you know, a little soul searching. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm I'm not um, being critical of all of FPMT. Uh, you know, FPMT um, you know has a lot of does a lot of really good projects in the world. And and you know, I I don't want to belittle the whole organization. I just I do think that you know. The process that unfolded in my Project Two uh, is was very uh, chaotic and un- unsettled um, the lives mm-hmm. of thousands of people. Mm-hmm.
1: That really, right. um, even if not by actually displacing them, uh, but just by like holding the threat of that yes, displacement over their yes, heads for years. That's right. That's right.
0: And and I so um and, and I, I think it's um I get really uh. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that, that has been, you know, things, people have said to me, well, nothing happened in Kushinagar. <laughs> I mean, nothing, nothing happened. Like, mm-hmm. just because there was no forcible land acquisition, there was no violence, mm-hmm. there was no. Um, but the, the threat of that forcible land acquisition, the anxiety about it, the way that it affected people's daily lives. I mean, the opportunity cost for all of these farmers who had to spend all this time protesting, right, that did fasting, but, um, you know, there was a lot of outcomes that were very um, negative mm-hmm. for the local community. Mm-hmm. So something happened in Kushinagar. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so I, I think, um, and I think that the Maitreya Project as an organization needs to sit with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I hope that they do. Mm-hmm. I hope that they do. Because in their in their public uh, in their public messaging, mm-hmm. they have been absolutely unwilling to take any sort of responsibility for any part of that. Um, and I can only hope that kind of, you know, as an organization, they're they're sitting around a table like saying like how can we make sure that this next version in Kushinagar is better. How do we make sure that we don't make the same mistakes? Like, how do we make sure that we are, you know, following a more participatory model or a a model that, that doesn't, you know, unsettle uh, a locality or kind of make our beneficial, our potential beneficiaries scared and anxious and angry. Like, how do we, how can we do better in the future? So, I, I hope for that yeah um, and and I and I do think that there's yeah there is possibly a happy ending in the future but um, you know one of the things that I you know I, I really love thinking about the future um, so I have a whole chapter that's kind of dedicated it's you know one of the the chapter about futurity mm-hmm. in this book mm-hmm. you know where I I um, I can be a little playful with this idea of like, well, it's a future statue of the mm-hmm. food fu- of the future Buddha mm-hmm. and the way that, um, you know, the way that, that, uh, that anxiety and hope are so wrapped up in one another mm-hmm. and kind of this, um, uh, this idea of the, the future tense, right. The, these competing ideas of the future and how they, they're uh, present with us mm-hmm. in ways that, that are unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think that you know we have a responsibility to as anthropologists to pay more attention mm-hmm. to the future and the present right and kind of the anxieties and hopes um, and I think that if um, you know so I you know I, I'm, I'm hopeful that um, you know so I'm thinking about my own anxieties and hopes yeah, as I yeah. articulate kind of the, the, um, the possibilities for the for the future of, of um, this 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 project and and this um, and this statue and and I I, I certainly um, you know hope for for uh, you know better
1: futures for my for all of my informants. So yeah, I think most anthropologists or perhaps all <laughs> anthropologists would agree with you there. We um, we hope for the best for the people we work with, even when. We maybe can't see exactly how that's going to work out. Mm-hmm. Um, I was curious, have you heard from anyone in FPMT since the book came out? <laughs> Not um, yet. Yeah. I'm, I, um, I, am, I am nervous. A little today. anxious. That. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Before we started recording, you and I were talking about you know, how nerve-wracking it can be mm-hmm. for the people that we write about to receive our work mm-hmm. and to... Yeah, voice their own thoughts and opinions about it so,
0: so I, I i sent several packages of books to mm-hmm. to informants in kushinagar so mm-hmm. my my um, you know my bbss mm-hmm. uh you know farmer activist informants um uh, some of them some of them are are you know, going to be able to <laughs> read this book mm-hmm. and some of them won't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. uh, not everyone is, is literate and those that are literate, not all of them speak English. Mm-hmm. Um, but some, but there will be, um, some of them that can kind of engage with the book. Um, mm-hmm. and so, but I don't expect to kind of, you know, I might get a letter or two mm-hmm. from them, but mm-hmm. I, I, didn't send any copies to FAMT itself or as an organization, um, I know I have friends in FPMT that will mm-hmm. get their hands on it, and mm-hmm. you know I, I hope they see that I tried to be fair, mm-hmm. you know, as and and I tried to represent FPMT as honestly um, as I could, and I tried to, um, you know, I I, I uh, you know I I do uh, I think I do say in, in the book at some point that you know I in, in trying to be fair to all of my informants i may have written a book that's un- that's somewhat unsatisfying to all of my informants
1: yeah. and and so
0: so that and that's the reality of the situation so i I'm, yeah. I'm you know i am i am bracing myself a little bit for you know, some like very nasty Amazon review. You know, that it's like, yeah. this person is going to
1: Buddhist hell. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I hope that doesn't happen. But I'm glad that you're prepared for the possibility. Yes, I'm prepared because, for the possibility. It, you know, yes, yeah, that could happen. Yeah. Um, so, what are you working on these days? Now that this project, which has mm-hmm. consumed a lot of your life, yeah. has has been finally brought to fruition and published. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: what What's next? Well, um, there are two projects that I've been working on. Uh, both of them have to do with uh, kind of global Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, one that I've already published a little bit from, but I'm, I'm working on, I've continued working on, is looking at Buddhism in the virtual world of Second Life. Mm-hmm. So looking at Buddhist practice and um, kind of holy objects and meditation in this digital world. Um, So, you know, very different than this project, but also um, similar in the sense that it's a lot of non-heritage Buddhist Mm -hmm. practitioners that are practicing in a relatively non-heritage Buddhist space. Right. And so in some ways um, there are echoes of, of, of some of the things that I was studying at FPMT and some of these, um, you know, buddhist spaces in second life and uh the other project that i'm working on i've done six months of field work now in uh, kona in hawaii and i'm looking at kind of a, a transnational uh, japanese buddhist community a japanese american buddhist community uh it's it's it is quite different it's a 100 year old temple that i'm studying um and so, a lot of the you know the heritage practitioners are third and fourth generation, but there's a lot of non-heritage um, converts that have joined the community. And so, it's this really interesting uh, moment of kind of demographic changes and uh, shifts in practice. Um, it's a really kind of fascinating Buddhist space. So, uh, it in some ways it couldn't be more different from this, yeah. this project, that, this book, the project that we just talked about. Um, and in other ways, I mean, I'm, I'm still just uh, kind of, you know, following the questions mm-hmm. in terms of kind of how is, how, you know, how is contemporary Buddhism um, manifesting in, in this changing world, right. Mm-hmm. With um, with all uh, with more complicated uh, congregations than mm-hmm. we've seen in the past. Yeah, so yeah,
1: so those are the projects I'm working on. Those yeah. will sound awesome and I look <laughs> forward to seeing the fruits of those projects as you continue to kind of tease out these many iterations of global Buddhism. Um, but for now I just wanted to bring this interview to an end and thank yes. you again so much for talking with us here thank on the you. New Books Network.